Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today's moment is from the ending of the Toccata and Fugue in D minor, BWV 565. Here is elemental and unbounded power. Impatiently ascending and descending runs and rolling masses of chords. That only with difficulty abates sufficiently to give place to the logic and balance of the fugue. With the reprise of the initial toccata, the dramatic idea reaches its culmination amidst flying scales and with an ending of great sonority. You just heard the ending of Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor. The description I just read for you is from a record sleeve. This description was written by Hans Joachim Schultz. And on the one hand, it seems to pretty adequately describe the sort of power of this piece. But on the other hand, it's really hard in any sense to put words to something like this. You really have to hear it as you just have. Here's that famous beginning of the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Elemental and unbounded power. And talking about that ending of great sonority. And I really think it's hard to get at why this piece has been so famous, why this particular work has soared above the rest in terms of its famousness among organ pieces. It is the most famous organ piece, I think. That's not a wild claim to make, right, Christian? I think this is one of the most famous organ pieces there is. I think when some people think of, of a pipe organ, this is what they hear in their head. Yeah. And it's got an interesting past. I mean, it sort of first came into, uh, into the limelight like many Bach pieces did um, during the sort of Bach revival of Mendelssohn's day. Mendelssohn himself performed this at a recital and it was really well received. 
it was not until later that it really became associated with Halloween and spookiness, really, right? I mean, when you hear this, this sounds like Halloween, right? Yeah. And it's the piece for, like, scary organ music. I'm like, why is that? Well, that's not, that's not how it was written, right? When this piece was written, it wasn't with the intention of being spooky, right? That's, that's kind of a more modern cultural reading of the music. And it just goes to show how these kinds of things really have to do with the times that you're in. It's not, it's not like this piece has always sounded Halloween. The piece got even more famous in 1940 when it was used in the movie Fantasia. And it was not just the organ version, but it was a new, at the time, orchestral transcription by Leopold Stokowski. And this orchestration of the work is really colorful and fun to, fun to hear and fun to watch in Fantasia. And it uses all the colors of the orchestra in so many fun ways. But as we can hear in our version played here by Leo von Dusselaar of the Netherlands Bach Society, you can get a lot of color out of an instrument such as the organ. As we've talked about before, and as this organist does talk about in the interview video that you can always find linked in the Netherlands Bach Society YouTube performance videos. The organ is like an orchestra, and an organist's job, besides playing the notes, is to orchestrate and pick what's called registrations. Registrations that are appropriate for the piece. There's a great little part in that interview where he is having someone else play some of the music so he can stand out in the, in the actual nave of the church and listen. And this person is playing, and he goes, stop, stop, stop. Sounds too pretty. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> yeah, for this piece, I mean, I think actually he was playing a different piece in that example, but for this piece, that would be a consideration, right? You wouldn't want to sound too pretty on this. So we get this spooky sort of vibe from this piece really coming from the 20th century piece was used in a lot of silent film and it gained that reputation for being scary and it really helps that it has a lot of what are called fully diminished chords chords that to our ears now they sound like cheesy old horror movies right that's what that sounds like the piece just has a lot of flair. So after its fame from Fantasia, during the latter half of the 20th century, there was a lot more musicology happening about this piece and a little bit of a question of its true authorship. Maybe it was postulated. Bach did not write this. It is not known. There are some who say that he did and some who say that he didn't, and there are legitimate arguments on both sides. 
but you could certainly make the case that it was a young Bach who wrote this, probably in his 20s, and that makes sense with what we know. Christian, you and I have talked about this before, so a lot of times the younger Bach took a lot more chances. We just had this in the very last episode, right, Christian? Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think I'm really gonna die on this hill, but I often prefer the really young Bach to the really older one. Yeah. Um, because he takes more chances and does things a lot more freely. And this is the, this is the perfect example of that. If we're assuming that he wrote this, then it absolutely is not something he would have written in his much more organized older days. Right. And that has a lot to do with its style. Now at the beginning, we hear this famous opening. And then this wonderfully broken up chord here. And that cadence. Then it goes on to something else. And this is just, this is a Takata style, right? This is kind of like a free form. It's not like a fugue, which is coming later. It kind of just goes wherever it wants to. But all the little thematic elements are linked in some way. And Alex, the word Takata, the Italian word, we should talk about what that means. Yeah. It means to touch, right? Yeah, it comes from the root of for to touch. In other words, to play one's instrument virtuosically and quickly. It's usually a showcase for an instrument, for a soloist. Right, when you see Takata on the program, you know it's gonna be like a show-off kind of piece. And, and Alex, I know this is not your chosen moment, but I feel like, I feel like some listeners are gonna be astonished if we don't talk about, or just to mention, the very first note and the first couple of phrases, which this organist, von Dusselaar, does quite differently than a lot of the recordings that maybe we've heard throughout our lives. And if you're familiar with this piece, or even just remember how you think the very beginning goes, the ornament he does at the beginning is not the same as the one that I'm familiar with from yeah from other recordings I've heard. Yeah. And if you look at the if the score, which we love to do that, we love to go back to the score. If you look at the score, it is not da da da. It's not written as like one two three, like three notes like that. It's just one note. It's just ba. But then it has a mordant, a type of uh, ornamentation on it, and you have a little bit of freedom to interpret that in a certain way. And our organist here does it a little differently, like you say, Christian. That is. Yeah, that is unique. And he does one other thing too, and I'll get to it later. It has to do with my moment. But yeah, once you hear the beginning few measures of this, it kind of like tells you what the organist is going to be like, right? And I love this performance. Anytime you see it, and anytime you see Leo von Dusselaar, um, he really, he really shows you with his body language and his facial expressions what's going on. You got to watch it, not just listen. And it is so delightfully different than what we're used to. I mean, 
it's the most famous couple of notes that there are maybe in, in all of classical music. And Alex, Jim Meredith, one of my mentors, prominent composer figure in, in our circles, Alex, and in handbells especially. Yeah. Uh, composer, director. And he says, these are the three most famous notes in music history. But he's talking about the first three notes that are the way that ornament is usually played right. in the Toccata and Fugue, in the Toccata. So he's talking about A-G-A. Yeah. A-G-A. Even though what's written on the page is just the note A in octaves with that ornament written on it. But it's usually rendered as three notes, just a neighbor step down and step back up. And those three notes are so iconic, you could even say. But this performance by the Netherlands Bach Society organist shows us that even that is not written in stone, you know? Yeah. And it kind of makes you wonder what else is like that in uh, in music, like in classical music in general, you know? Like, do people just play these famous pieces the way that they know because that's what they've heard? Or do they allow themselves the freedom to make an interpretation, right? And this gets me to my to my moment. Well, first, let's listen to that beginning again before we jump to the end. In the beginning, after the marvelous upward arpeggio, it lands on a cadence on a major, a D major, right? A Picardy third. We've heard of this before. We've talked about this on a D major chord. But then the piece goes right back into D minor, right? This is normal. This is what you expect. At the end of the Toccata section, which is basically the first third or so of the piece if you're looking at the runtime, it ends on D minor again. The piece is in D minor. This is normal. Okay. The fugue starts in D minor. An interesting little tidbit is that the countersubject section of the fugue with the answer is in G instead of A, like you would think, but that's uh, not something we have to focus on right now, but I like that. But anyway, when you get to the end, this really powerful um, ending that recalls sections of the Toccata, when you get to the end, you think it's going to be over, and then you hit a deceptive cadence, a really, really good deceptive cadence, right? But then in the very final moment, and my favorite moment, well, as you just heard, it was a major chord. It was what's called a Picardy third, where you make the last chord major. Very common of the day, but it's not actually notated that way in this score. And No, and not always <laughs> yeah. played that way. No, usually not played that way. And uh, looking at the comments on the video, <laughs> that's kind of a like contested thing <laughs> that he that he did there. I think it's a, a great ah. yeah. I think it's a great thing. But <laughs> let me see if I can no. find this one comment. Oh. 
that yeah, I'm, I'm look, now I'm trying to sort the comments by sort by controversial. <laughs> Can you do that? I don't know. On YouTube, no. No. That's no. more of a Reddit thing. <laughs> I'm trying to find the comment. I know there's one in here that's that quotes him. There's like quite a few people defending defending him. Now, listener, we're not saying that you should go browsing through YouTube comments like we are. That's <laughs> maybe not a good <laughs> not good for the old mental health. No. There is one interesting reply from Netherlands Box Society on one of these comments um, oh. that says that the organist Van Dosselaar thought it worked better and more naturally in ending than minor key, especially on the Baroque organ in older tuning. He mentions that the following considerations. And then he actually goes into a little list of like, here's why I thought this, you know, so not to get into the whole thing, but just to say that, you know, these musicians are making educated decisions, not, not educated guesses, educated, like interpretive decisions, you know, and he gets to do that. He's Mm -hmm. performing the piece. He's, they're trying to do it in a period accurate way. And he didn't just do that because he, you know, he's like, I just want to stand out. He did that because that's, probably what they would have done, or at least it's an educated decision. And remember, the score that we have of this is not in box handwriting because we're not really sure, because it's a copy, we're not really sure it was actually Bach. Which leads me to my next interesting tidbit about this piece. There is a theory that it was actually a transcription of a Bach violin piece, like with some added stuff in the fugue. I also found an interesting article. That's only one theory of many, because I also found this other interesting article by this guy, Eric Lewin Altschuler, where he thinks that this piece, Bach's Staccato and Fugue, and the Chaconne from the Violin Partita Number no. 2, which we just did two episodes ago, this article happens to be about both of those pieces. He thinks that they maybe were originally lute pieces. Wow. And then Bach redid them. That one, he redid for violin. This one, he or someone else redid for organ. And really, so many of these things could be true because a lot of times composers would take their own or other composers' work and just copy it out exactly as written, just as an exercise or just because they wanted to have a copy. Or they'd make an arrangement or a transcription just for their own reasons. So a lot of these stories could be right, they could be wrong, it's hard to know. And I think it's because of the enduring popularity of this particular organ work that so many guesses have been made. Yeah. This does happen with things that become incredibly popular where a decision that that a copyist might have made hundreds of years ago, like this one, or maybe a, a typo or whatever, anything like that is amplified and, as the Netherlands Box Society said, imitated millions of times. So, like, let's say that this copyist forgot to put the F-sharp at the end, making it a major chord at the end, instead leaving it minor, which is how we almost always hear it, except for this one, except for this recording. Yeah, and that's what Van Dusselaar guessed, too. He he thinks maybe he forgot to write that sharp. He might have forgotten, or it could have been even one of those things where we just it was just expected that organists would who were worth their salt would just know to do it. Yeah. But 
it's just that's funny because it's just one little thing like that has such cascading consequences like the butterfly effect to how people do things and how people think things are supposed to be done and the netherlands box society what i love about this interpretation is that they've they've shown that they're going to do their own homework and make their own cases for how they're going to interpret things yes i and to that point this is the end of that quote from the organist van Dusselaar. he says he says if not as in if it was supposed to be minor then the listeners in the Baroque period must have had the same shock with the minor ending as some listeners would now with the Picardy Third, right? Yeah. And he says, either the shock is ultimately just as great as it was then, or Rink, that's the guy who wrote down the score, accidentally forgot to note that sharp, an omission that in that case has been imitated millions of times. And I think that I think that the shock of it now being major instead of minor just is actually a little bit less interesting because because of the tuning you know like we're, we're not going to get we don't have to get into that in this episode that's a whole thing but like it's like you were you're hinting at alex the baroque tuning was far more complex and sophisticated than what we have now and now we just think major happy minor sad and like we expect this to end minor and if it ends major it's, it's weird but really minor chords were out of tune in a way that major chords were were not. Yep. You know, major harmonies are closer to the pure nature of the harmonic series, and minor chords have that one pitch in them that is not as close and would have actually been a little bit less appropriate to end a large work with. Yes. And I also like this theory, which is just my own theory, that... The, the end of that first phrase of the piece has a Picardy third. It is marked. Then the end of the Toccata is just minor, and that is how it's notated. Then, because of the rule of three, the last one in my opinion, should be major again. That way it goes major, minor, and major for the three most important cadences in the piece. Yeah, that would make sense, especially considering that something like that falling in the middle of a composition should be left somewhat open-ended or not completely resolved. And you could say that the ending on the minor is like that. And for it to be completely resolved, it needs to end on the completely resolved major chord at the end. Yeah. And this piece just has so much character. One thing I want to mention, it's not really my moment, but it's a cool spot, is this repeated note thing that happens in the Toccata. And then a different version of it happens in the fugue. You hear these repeated notes continually on the off beats. It's a technique called bariolage, which is a string instrument term, but it can be used in keyboard instruments too. It's kind of like a fiddling thing almost, or cross-fingering, sometimes called in bluegrass, where you just keep on going back to an open string. 
So one of the like melodic lines is moving up and down and the other one is staying put on an open string. And this is one more piece of evidence that our uh, previous person I talked about uses to say this maybe this is a lute piece mm. because that would work really well on lute. Definitely. But this is also one of those things where it's like, this is very characteristic of Bach. So maybe this is a piece of evidence in favor of Bach, but it's also very characteristic of a lot of other Baroque composers. So maybe it's a strike against this being a true Bach piece. Yeah, and some people argue that this doesn't sound like Bach because it's a little too wild and and free. And yeah, I don't know. My uh, one possible retort to that is that Bach did so much variety throughout his life uh, in terms of stylistic variety. Yeah. It's not like he couldn't have done this. I'm not even trying to say I I wish this was J.S. Bach that wrote this because I, I would rather be accurate in who in knowing who wrote this, but it absolutely could be because he did anything. He knew the fashionable styles of the day just as well as he could write the most austere and old Renaissance style counterpoint. Yeah, he could have done this. You know. Yeah, we know that he was well versed in all these different styles. Don't put Bach in a box. That's what I say. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I think that this kind of like reminds me of the Mozart Requiem where Mozart's Requiem is unfinished. And some other composers, even modern ones, have taken it upon themselves to finish it in the classical style. And I don't really like those versions because when they sound really Mozart-like, they sound like a ripoff. And when they sound unlike Mozart, or they sound like they're kind of going out on a limb, then they're more interesting but you don't know if he would have really done that. It's just kind of a shame that we just don't have that whole piece, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, and this is a similar thing. But I, I like this, um, to your point, Christian, about Bach being able to write and all these styles. I like this quote by Hans Fagius. He said, The fact remains that the Toccata is strikingly unorganistic and modern to have been written by Bach around 1705, even if the form is that of North German Toccata. There are, however few organ pieces with so much spirit and drive and why should not a genius like Bach and youthful high spirits have produced this unique work which is in some respects half a century before its time and which could achieve a place as one of the most beloved compositions in all of music history I think that nicely sums up uh, your point there yeah very well said by that author And don't think I would be doing my due diligence as a someone with a doctorate in music composition without taking a particular offense at the at the harmonic progression at the very end, which is your moment, Alex. And uh, of course, I'm kidding. It's I don't take offense. Actually, I love it when something just doesn't work and doesn't fit into our mold of how we expect harmony to work. Yeah. And maybe you're getting around to this, so Alex, so let me know. But I'm talking about just the last few chords here. We've got this deception. Uh, 
have referred to this before on this podcast, the deceptive cadence, a moment that seems like it's about to be the last chord, but then it winds up somewhere else. And this one is a little bit of a different approach to that, but there's something I you really do not want me to get into the actual music theory of this because it's too dense and boring, but and without context. But I think I'm just going to summarize it by saying that music theory rules of harmonic progression in music theory are things that we look for, patterns uh, that these composers did. Not saying that these composers had a rule book that they were using for which chords could follow one another, but they definitely did these patterns over and over and over again. Yeah. And this one is this one is not this one is a violation of those pattern of a pattern. It doesn't follow the rules is basically the yeah. And, and but like you said Christian it's not rules. It's it's a style, right? There were treatises on like how to do these things, but but also is kind of like how music is today, which is that it is a style. It's what people do because it's what the style of the day is. Yeah, there's there's plenty of things here that there's plenty of other moments of Bach throughout the rest of his life that are equally as illegal from a music theory standpoint as this last couple of measures of this piece, but in other ways, just not harmonic progression, but some, but other things, rhythm, whatever. But that doesn't make them wrong. It just shows outside of the box thinking on the part of Bach, because there's definitely a difference. And this, this ending is the perfect example. It doesn't actually to our modern ears. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't sound wrong. No. If anything, it sounds a little abrupt and sort of maybe even sudden, uh, but or doesn't it? Maybe it lacks the expected finality, but instead it replaces it with an almost more somber and strange sort of ending, which uh, which actually this organist Van Dusselaar subverts again. Because he gives us the gives us a major chord at the end, so it's just great. I mean, it's just like the, that subversion of expectation is just so wonderful. Just from the original score all the way up to this modern interpretation, it's just it's just a delight to to hear what what's being made of it in the twenty first century. Yeah. An enigma of a piece, right? Something that's not really very Bach-like, but in another aspect, it's super Bach. You know, it's like, it's just like, it's too much of it for one piece almost. Usually his music is so compact in terms of its thematic material, right? And he gets so much usage out of a small amount of thematic material. This piece has quite a bit of thematic material, some of which never repeats, right? It almost seems like this was actually an improvisation. I mean, it's it's written in an improvisatory style, but for this one, it almost seems like all the other organ works are, they have a degree of organization and editing. And this one, it's almost as though Bach, I could almost imagine that Bach didn't even give permission. You know, somebody 
notated this by ear or something and and got got a score made yeah or i think he i think he discarded it that's my theory it's it's one that some music scholars have put forth and that is that this is a bach piece that he discarded or just didn't really keep track of and didn't really care about that much didn't think it was one of his best work and somebody else found it yeah this was actually probably just a day-by-day type of improvisation by a young J.S. Bach. This, yeah, this could easily, this could easily have been a completely improvised piece. We know that he was capable of that kind of thing. And just, it almost makes me sad to think about how much unbelievably great music has been lost that we just don't have anymore from Bach. Stuff that he just improvised on the fly and nobody ever wrote down, or stuff that he did write, but has been lost to time. And in the age of recording, it's amazing that we have stuff like the Netherlands Box Society. But on the other hand, I think this very point, Alex, it makes me think of something that I think of a lot. I think a lot about how the experience, the fleeting momentary experience of listening to something only one time is never truly repeatable and rather than being sad about that i like to think that that's unspeakably profound you know and and it should be we should treat that with with like a reverent beauty because something something like a really good performance of something the fact that it only ever is going to happen once in the exact way to you, in the exact acoustic space, you know, in, the, in your headspace, and just everything. I think that's kind of beautiful. And this most famous, maybe most famous piece ever that we're dealing with today kind of encapsulates that, except it was written. It almost sounds like an improvisation that was written down almost without permission. And I don't know, I'm just, I'm just glad it exists and that it got written down. I don't see it as any less than the highly structured and methodical works that a composer with a mind like Bach would have seen fit to actually try to publish. And now, here is the ending of the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this piece, please see the link in the episode description to see this performance of the Toccata and Fugue in D minor by Leo van Dusselaar of the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? 
find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. We're just about on any podcast platform that you can find. And we also have a Facebook page and Instagram and a website. And please, a listener, please get in touch with us and rate us and review us on iTunes. That helps a lot. And Alex is reminding me to share. Just said He just said share. Share. Because that means share these episodes and, and uh, stuff with, with friends. And we get a lot of uh, joy of this stuff being shared in like a forum or classroom type of setting. And I think that maybe has happened a couple times because we've seen a couple of numbers get boosted suddenly and we're wondering if we're being shared by organization or something. So please do that. <laughs> yeah. And let us know if you're using us for a class or for something like that. It's fun for us to hear about that stuff. Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious, listener, by this point that Alex and I really just love this sort of casual slash professorial style of, of exploring these Bach topics. And we, we never run out of things to talk about, which is, it's great because like we both, we, Alex, we both taught college courses. And this is like a great, really fun lecture in some ways that without the technicalities and without uh you know having to grade anybody (laughs) i guess you could say (laughs) yeah you grade us there you go you know you give us a review yeah (laughs) give us give us a nice review (laughs) that's how it works these days yeah all right christian what are we going to be talking about next week we'll be looking at a moment from the fugue of the prelude in fugue number five in d major bwv 850 from the Well-Tempered Clavier, Book One. All right. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Mm-hmm.